Welcome to the study of God's Word with pastor and author Ed Taylor, recorded live from Calvary Chapel in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media, visit us online at calvaryaurora.org or download our free app on all platforms. And now, here's Pastor Ed to take us into our study. Amen. Take your Bibles, open them to 1 Kings chapter 19. 1 Kings chapter 19. Now often the Bible uses the phrase or the word mountaintop, or we might use that, to display God's power and to display God's intimacy and his closeness to us. Mountaintops often reflect a devotional life and sacrifice to God. It's on the mountaintop that Moses receives the law. It's on a mountaintop that Jesus appears transfigured. It's on mountaintops that the disciples draw near in prayer. And as we learned last time, it's on a mountaintop that Elijah defeats the prophets of Baal. I mean, the the greatest victory in his life, or one of the greatest victories in his life. The power of God. But the reality is, is we don't live on the mountaintops. That's not where we place our tents. We, We live in the valleys of reality. Sometimes that's a valley of the shadow of death, and sometimes it's just the reality of walking through the valley. When Jesus was transfigured, the Bible says this in Matthew chapter 17, verse 8. When they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. That was closeness and intimacy. But coming down from the mountaintop, they were met with a desperate dad, a faithless generation, and a demon-possessed son. They were met with unbelief and they were met with warfare. So that Mark records in Mark chapter 9 verse 8, suddenly when they had looked around, they saw no one anymore but Jesus with themselves. Then the next scene in Mark is the disciples disputing with the scribes from glory to disputes so quickly. After the heights of triumph, there are the depths of despair and difficulty and warfare. Elijah in chapter 18 of 1 Kings had his own mountaintop. Great victory. God had built his faith all along the way to get him to that place of trusting in God for the fire to come down from heaven. So much so, just keep pouring the water, keep pouring the water. Let's make sure that when God acts, I mean, it wasn't just simply a faith waiting, but it was also a faith trusting, and then it was a faith saying, man, I I want only God to get the credit and the glory. I mean, if, if fire coming down from heaven wasn't enough for God to get all the glory, just keep pouring the water, keep pouring the water so that God, he, there's no mistake, no mistake of what God has done up on the mountaintop. So notice in verse one of chapter 19, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, also how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, thank you, Elijah, for helping clear, no, that's not what it says. (laughs) Read carefully. So let the gods, little g, do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And when he saw that, he arose, and mark these words, ran for his life, and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. 
Even though Ahab, a king over God's people, has seen and experienced the very power of God, he still doesn't yield. Aren't there people you're praying for right now that part of your prayer sometimes is, Lord, if they could just see, if you could just show them something, just a little miracle, if you could just call a little, I mean, nothing that would hurt anybody, but just a little fire from heaven, scare the horses a little bit or just a little fire from heaven that will startle them or can can you just do something small I mean just I'm not asking for like biblical proportions just something to shake them Would, would they can they just feel what I feel for a moment can they just see with spiritual eyes what I see with spirit can you just lift the blindness just for a second remember Ahab saw great power He experienced it, and it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough for him. He doesn't yield, he doesn't surrender, he doesn't repent. And that's what pride will do. It will harden the heart. It will push a person away from God. And instead of accepting the fact that Jehovah is the one true God, not only Ahab, but Jezebel, continue to turn farther away. And notice when he speaks to his wife, in verse 1, notice how he describes what he saw. What he saw, and the way he describes it, is Ahab told Jezebel all Elijah had done. All that Elijah had done. That's how he describes it. Elijah did it. Was it Elijah, yes or no? Now, I guess you could do half a little bit. That's kind of a trick question. But I think it was something supernatural, too, with Elijah killing all those guys. But, but I mean, yeah, Elijah was involved, but God alone accomplished that. The, just like you and me. So many times we give credit to the messenger when it's not the messenger at all. It's the one that sent the message. And we have to train ourselves not to look to man. We're not to look to man when things are going well, and we're certainly not to look to man when things are not going well. We're to keep our eyes just like they did on the Mount of Transfiguration. When they looked around, they saw no one but Jesus. And then just a few moments later, oh, it's Jesus and themselves. And then a few moments later, they're back down the valley and it's all the difficulty of life because that's the way life is. We have to be careful. Keep our eyes on the Lord. We don't look at the instruments. We look at the one holding and using the instrument. But Ahab, that's where he's stuck. He's stuck in the now. Look what Elijah did. And this ticked her off and upset her. She doesn't even clarify in what's recorded. Just like, hey, let the gods do to me and more if I don't make your life as the life of one of them. One of who? Well, the prophets. She's like, man, I heard about what you did. Nothing about the fire down from heaven. Nothing about the glory of God. Nothing about the challenge. Just the fact that he lost the false prophets and their gods, little G, the very God she's calling upon, failed. They failed. Because they didn't exist. They have eyes that don't see, ears that don't hear, hands that they're just, they're false. And they're fake. So she sends word that she's going to kill him. And knowing Elijah, where he came from, his closeness to God, the power that he witnessed and participated in, the things that he saw, the things that he heard, what do we think his response to this would be? Standing straight up to Jezebel and says, go for it. Do whatever you want to do. I stand for the Lord. That's what we would expect. Maybe it's an unrealistic expectation because he responded like a normal human being. That shouldn't surprise us, should it? 
Because when we were introduced to Elijah, what do we learn about him? He's a normal human being, a man with a nature just like ours. He's not a superhero. There aren't any superheroes. That's mythology. He was a normal man empowered by God and instead of standing strong, instead of, hey man, you know what, with fire called down, if, I, if fire came down earlier, I'll call it down on you, Jezebel. You don't scare me. No, no, he was scared. He ran for his life in fear. And I don't know if you noticed, we kind of read by, it says that he, he went to Judah and he left his servant there. <laughs> He's out of here. Like you, you deal with her. You deal with this messenger. Jezebel, understand. Jezebel was a conniving, shrewd, manipulating woman. There are oftentimes that phrase, a Jezebel spirit, is used. Anytime she's described in the Bible, it is not good. You never want to be compared, ladies, to Jezebel. You never want to go on a date and the guy says at the end, you know, you remind me of Jezebel. That, that is not what you want. She's not a wise woman. She's not a woman that you want to model your life after. And often that's how things are. We're surrounded by shrewd, manipulating, passive-aggressive men and women. Of course, Jezebel at least is honest enough to not be passive. She's just aggressive. And she'll just take things in her own hands as we'll see her in the coming chapters. And yet, it's those that you would never suspect It's often those that you've placed your trust in, those that perhaps have gained your trust. And you'll be shocked often when their true colors are revealed. Let let me show you. Turn over to Matthew chapter 23, would you? Matthew 23. It's often the ones that, that are revealed that shock you, that you would have never, ever thought in a million years that they would respond in such a way or act in such a way. Jezebel isn't so, so behind the scenes. She's not so passive. But this is the king's wife. You would expect the king of Israel's wife to be some kind of godly woman, but she wasn't. Notice with me Matthew chapter 23. Pick up in verse 27, would you? On the outside, so often sweet and kind and smiling, but inside there's rottenness and And Matthew tells us, uh, recording the words of Jesus, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Here's the New Living Translation. How terrible it will be for you, teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees, hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but filled on the inside with dead people's bones. And all sorts of impurity. You try to look upright, you try to look upright, people outwardly, but inside your hearts are filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness. Jezebel is a wicked woman, an evil woman. So much so, Jesus uses her as a wicked example, warning the church in Thyatira in the book of Revelation. And it's just so true. People can be very wicked, very deceitful. Jesus would also describe a group of people that are are sheep in wolves' clothing. 
Wanting to deceive, Paul would tell the elders in Ephesus, after my departure, savage wolves will rise up from among you, not sparing the flock. And it's always a startling revelation to find out who true believers are and who false believers are. And you'll know them, Jesus said, by their fruits. So, so far what you know about Jezebel, is she wicked or not? She's just a wicked to the core calling on the same false gods that failed the prophets of Baal to go after the righteous man, Elijah. Now, turn our focus back just to a moment to Elijah and let's understand something. The threat of Jezebel reveals in Elijah a lack of faith. And let's just understand something about life. The situations in our lives that come to us reveal a lot about ourselves, to us, to others, But if we're paying attention, we're going to learn a lot about ourselves. I mean, here you are, you thought you were so strong. Here you are, you just experienced the greatest victory in your life. Here you are, just things are going so well and so strong, and at the simple words of someone, or a simple memory, or you name what has come your way, the revelation of a lack of faith or, or inward anger or things that you thought you dealt with, here they are again so that the Lord can deal with them again. Fear and faith are mutually excu- exclusive. Fear and faith. They're mutually exclusive. When you have a real faith in God, you will not be in fear. Real faith... Now, Don't misunderstand me. This is living faith. This isn't like saving faith. Saving faith is that type of faith that now you're born again and now you're living by faith and you're living in faith. So when when we speak of this, not like you lose your salvation, get it back, nothing like that. This is just the reality of life. Fear is minimized when faith is increased. Like we have a real trust in God and we just know that he's gonna take care of it. Fear is often a sign of a lack of faith. Trusting in myself and my own resources. Trusting in my situation and the way that I am estimating things. Elijah's discouraged and he's fearful as we'll get to in a moment. He's going through the reality of of seeing his life for what it is in the moment and running away, away from God. He thought that when Ahab told Jezebel what had happened there, that it would finally get Ahab. This would be the time that, that fire comes down from heaven, the water is licked up, that surely Jezebel, surely Ahab, they would come to their senses. And how often have we been disappointed with the circumstances in life when people don't come to their senses as fast as we would want them to? And we continue to pay the price of their sin or their manipulation. She vows vengeance against Elijah. And it's a warning to us as we begin this chapter. It's a warning to every one of us that serve God and love him. Remember Elijah, because it's so many times when we face and experience spiritual success and progress and victory and the joy of victory, where we come to the place and go, man, this is it. We're kind of like Peter when he was at the Mount of Transfiguration. He says, I don't want to go down. We'll just put some tents here and we'll live here forever. I don't want to go down. Uh, we're, this is it. We've, we, this is the epitome of life, this kind of success. You, you share the gospel with a coworker and they get saved and you're just like, oh, 
I can't believe this. They didn't get saved at church. They didn't get saved listening to the radio. They, didn't get, they got saved in this cubicle. This cubicle became a church. And I prayed with my coworker right here at work. I can't believe it. On our break, but right here, on our, right here. And this is it. This is so great. This is wonderful. And the very next day, they're closing down the business. What? And you go back, you go like, why'd you get saved? No, you don't do that. You're like, yes, Lord. And then, oh, no, Lord. You get to that high point. Such a great, awesome victory. And it's in these times that we need to look out. Times of great success. We need to be on the lookout because Satan is waiting around the corner to cut you down to size. The Bible says that he's roaming about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. You probably think that verse is for everyone else, don't you? Seeking whom he might devour but me. And yet, those of you that are making progress, those of you that see victory, it doesn't have to even be a super victory. It doesn't even have to be something like Mount Carmel. It could be a lot of, isn't life made up of a lot of little victories? A lot of little progress, a lot of little steps of obedience. And you're just in that zone and God is using and you're taking this step and you're making this progress. And, and it's just, man, little progress, little by little. Even, even in those times where you make three steps forward, two steps back, three steps forward, listen, the enemy wants to, to take us out. And that's what he's doing to Elijah with just simple words, that testing of our faith. It's interesting to me, all these, as much as we have these little progress, we also have these little tests. They're not so big like Jezebel. They're often little tests. A little test to compromise, a little test to fear, a little test to go backwards, a little test to get angry, a little test to speak our mind. All these little tests, they're like little foxes that love to spoil the vines and eat away at who we are in the Lord. You may have some great victory in some huge thing and then trip up in the smallest of things. You just such great victory and overwhelming progress. And then it's the littlest thing that cuts you back down to size and humbles you and reminds you of your utter need for the Lord in your life. You can come out of some dynamic spiritual victory and spiritual high and think, oh yes, this is it. Let's just stay on the mountaintop, Lord. And then some foolish little thing will rob your joy and steal away the blessing and bring you down, down, farther down than where you were when you started. That's where Elijah is. If it happened to Elijah, you can be sure it happens to us. Elijah's a man like us, experiencing great power, but now great despair. Notice verse four. So quick too. We're not talking years here. We're talking moments. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat, this is verse four, down under the broom tree. And he prayed that he might die and said, it is enough. Now, Lord, take my life, for I'm no better than my father's. Then as he lay and slept under a broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, arise and eat. And then he looked, and there by his head was a cake baked on coals. This guy's always getting food delivered to him. (laughs) And a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey's too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank, and he went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. Jezebel, the shrewd manipulator that she was, no doubt saw the vulnerability in Elijah's life. He was at a vulnerable time. 
He was mentally, emotionally, and spiritually exhausted. We read chapter 18 and study half the chapter in 40 minutes. But it, did, it took a lot longer than 40 minutes for this all to go down. And it took a lot longer than 40 minutes for him to slay 400 prophets. And it took him a lot longer to rest and recuperate. And he's at a weak point in his life as much as he's at a strong point because he's still human. And she recognizes the weakness and takes advantage of it. Just like the enemy, just like the devil himself, she takes advantage of a man's weakness to attempt to utterly destroy him. You don't need to read ahead, but I'm going to let you know. She doesn't succeed. Can I get an amen on that? Because the devil's not going to succeed for you either. In your weak time, in your weak moment, even if someone is the tool in the enemy's hands to try to utterly destroy you, by faith, you're going to make it. By faith, you're going to make it all the way to the end. Why? Because the Bible promises, he that began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. That's the truth. That's the truth. So here he is. Elijah has demonstrated for over three years now his commitment to hear from God, seek God, and obey God, but so quickly he's running ahead of the Lord in order to save his own physical life. The moment and the emotion and the fear got the best of him. And we just, we need to take consideration of that, that those things can get the best of us too. It doesn't make you a bad believer, it just makes you a vulnerable one. The difficulties in life, they just weaken our resolve, sometimes fill our minds with thoughts, and then the onslaught of the enemy to throw lies at us and accuse us, and there are times when we just believe the lie. It's what got in trouble, it's what got Eve in trouble. It's what got Adam in trouble. They believed the lie and acted on that lying belief. But mark this, when we get out of God's will, we're prone to do all kinds of dumb, sinful, stupid things. That's quotable, that's tweetable right there. When we get out of God's will, we're prone to do all kinds of dumb, dumb, sinful, and stupid things. Abraham did it, David did it, Moses, Peter, and on the list goes. The combination of emotional tiredness, weariness, hunger, and a deep sense of fear and failure, along with faithlessness, brought Elijah into a deep depression, so deep that he wanted to end his own life. Really, he wanted God to end his life. But he's right in that place. He's right in that place of wanting to see it all end. And so Elijah, he heads off, it says in verse four, a day's journey, which is a long time to talk to yourself a day in a weak moment. Because you know, when you isolate yourself, the Bible says you're not wise. That's what the Proverbs say. A man that isolates himself is not wise. And when you isolate yourself, you only have, and you're not really in the spirit, you're not talking to God, you're talking to yourself. Yourself to talk to during a weak time is not the best person to talk to. You don't counsel yourself wisely. You don't encourage yourself, at least not in the outset. I mean, David got to that place where he finally encouraged himself in the Lord. So it's possible, but but man, you take a day's journey and you you got your head on the platter and you're thinking about victory and whoa, what about the victory? And now she's after me. A day's journey is a long time to talk to yourself about the difficulties that you're feeling and, and you're able to exaggerate the reality of the situation even worse than it is. And so he goes a day's journey into the wilderness. He finally rests under a tree. And his prayer was, I had enough. I just want to die. Just, I'm no better than my father's. And he has forgotten the victory so quickly. As he laid there in verse 5, he 
finds that there's food there. There's food for him to eat. He's laying there, an angel is sent, touches him, and tells him, you got to eat. Get up and eat. It's wonderful, isn't it? God spreads a table before, right before Elijah, just like the Bible says in Psalm 23, verse 5, remember? Psalm 23, verse 5, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Elijah's experiencing this. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Elijah eats and is able, just by this simple act of obedience, he's able to travel 40 days on this little cake. And you're like, what was that cake? You know, it reminds us of the manna. It reminds us of the manna where every day what was in that manna was enough to sustain the children of Israel every part of their necessity nutritionally. And they were able to eat it. Then the manna reminds us of who? Jesus, where he spoke of being the manna. And he's our sufficiency. It's a beautiful picture here. One commentator summarizes it this way. When you review God's ministries to Elijah, recorded in Kings 18 and 19, you'll see a parallel to the promise in Isaiah 40, 31. For three years, the prophet had been hidden by God, during which time he waited on the Lord. And when the Lord sent him to Mount Carmel, he enabled Elijah to mount up with wings as eagles and triumph over the prophets of Baal. After Elijah prayed and it began to rain, the Lord strengthened him to run and not be weary. And now he sustains him for 40 days so he could walk and not faint. Elijah wasn't wholly living in the will of God, but he was smart enough to know that he had to wait on the Lord if he expected to have the strength for ministry and for the journey that lay before him. So powerful. Verse 9. And there he went into a cave, and he spent the night in that place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very jealous, or excuse me, zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel, forsaken your covenant, covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Elijah finally settles down in a cave, from the mountaintop to a cave, alone, waiting on the Lord, processing his feelings and his thoughts, willing to give up everything. And the word of the Lord to Elijah was, what are you doing here? Echoes of the Garden of Eden. Where are you, Adam? He asked the same thing to Elijah with just a little bit of different phrasing. What are you doing here? I believe that's the word of the Lord to some today. Looking at your life, looking at the condition of your life, looking at where you are, the word of the Lord to you today is, what are you doing here? Oh, he's not speaking of being in a church building or being tuned in on a broadcast on the television or online or even having your radio tuned in. He's not, he's not asking you about your physical location, although some of you that may be true. I believe this is a spiritual question of the condition of your life. What are you doing here? Is it a cave? Have you isolated yourself? Is it the cave of compromise? What are you doing here? Is it the cave of unbelief? What are you doing here? Is it the cave of isolation? What are you doing here? Is it the cave of fear? What are you doing here? Is it the cave of disobedience? What are you doing here? And it's a good question to ask because, yeah, he answers it. His heart is revealed. Man, I've lived my life for you. They've turned their back on you. 
It's almost as if he's saying, this is my reward? I've defeated 400 prophets in your name by faith. And here I am in a cave running away from Jezebel. It's almost like you can hear what's not being said here, what's often in our thoughts. It's almost like you can hear Elijah say, I've been so zealous. Why is she getting away with this? And yet God doesn't play any of that. Whatever is being said or unsaid, we know exactly what's been recorded for us. I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts. The children of Israel, the whole nation has forsaken you and your covenant, torn your altars down, killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. That phrase, I alone am left. Answer me, is that true, yes or no? No, it's not true. We know from the text it's not a true statement. But he, did he believe it to be true? You bet. That's where he was. That's the space that he was in. He believed it was true. And that was the kicker for him. I alone. It's just me. I'm the only one facing this. I'm the only one going through this. Nobody understands. Nobody knows. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. But it's real. It's real. Some of you have been there. You wish you could laugh in times like that, but they're not laughable moments, are they? They're very scary. They're, they're very concerning. And he does something that's very wise. He's honest with God. You can be honest with God in your prayer life, church. You can be honest with God. You don't have to have any kind of flowery, perfect King James language. You know, even when you're breaking up in groups, it's so encouraging to see so many more people come and join us to pray as God is beginning to stir up in our fellowship more desire, a deeper desire to pray and to see God gathering us. When you're in a group, it's okay to be honest. Yeah, but Ed, what if they laugh at me? Who cares? Fear God, not man. And if they laugh at you, it's a discipleship moment. Hopefully there's another uh, mature brother in that group or sister that can take that brother or sister aside and say, hey, look here, we're real when it comes to God. We're not fake. And that brother's going through something. And what they don't need is a laugh. They need support. They need encouragement. And it, everything's a discipleship moment. You can be real. Maybe it's just in your prayer closet. And you, you, know, you might even feel bad saying, feeling, you know, telling God, I feel alone. Like you're like, I should, I'm, I've been walking with the Lord long enough. I shouldn't be feeling that. No, you can be honest. It's like, it's like well, you think God, I'm doing great, God. And God's, oh, okay. I, I was kind of, I thought you weren't, but now, now I know. You know, I thought you needed a cake for 40 days, but let me take that cake back, you know. And a raven just soups in and takes your cake. No, God knows. The Bible says everything is naked and open before the eyes of he who sees. It's not, that's not, you, you and I don't hide anything from God. And I know we get a little uncomfortable with people, but Elijah forever, eternally, because God's word is eternal in heaven, forever, Elijah is known as a person that ran to the caves and was feeling alone right after he defeated 400 false prophets and fire came down from heaven and the oil didn't end and the flower didn't end and the kid was brought back from the dead. That's that Elijah, it's the same guy, is now in the caves by himself, physically, with the Lord there to encourage him. The good news is, is that he doesn't stay in the caves. Even though he feels alone, he doesn't stay there. 
I want to save the rest of the chapter for our next time, but it's enough. It's enough to see in verse 11. Then he said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in an earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after a fire, a still, small voice. And so it was, when Elijah heard it, that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And suddenly a voice came down to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? After all of the all of the activity supernaturally, the still small voice, the voice of the Lord asks him the same question a second time. What are you doing here, Elijah? And so Elijah changes his answer, verse 14. I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left and they seek to take my life. He changed it, not a bit. This is where he's at. It's almost like it's rehearsed. He's thought it over and over and over again. And the Lord said to him, go return your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, anoint Haziel as king over Syria. Also you shall anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint his prophet in your place. It shall be that whoever escapes the sword of Haziel, Jehu will kill. And whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha will kill. Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. I alone am left. That's what Elijah saw and felt. But the truth was, there were 7,001 Elijahs. 7,001. He was not alone. And he definitely wasn't as alone as he thought he was. God says, I've reserved. I've kept. And, and I wonder, I wonder how many times Elijah's story was used by God to encourage someone else. Maybe one of those 7,000. Oh, you know, I'm a, and it's like, dude, you, you got to check out my boy Elijah. This guy is amazing. He's going through it right now, but he's over in a cave. So you're not alone. There's 6,999, and then that guy, Elijah, he's in the cave. Everything's going to be fine. And that's why coming together as a body of believers is so encouraging. Even if you're in here today and you would say to me, Ed, I don't know a single person in this room. I want to tell you something. You don't need to know a single person in this room tonight because God would just encourage you to say, hey, I've reserved a lot more people just like you. You're not alone in this city. And you're not alone in your sadness. And you're not alone in your grief. And you're not alone in your fear. And you're not alone. That the Lord is with you. And you don't have to have, you don't have to have all the answers. And you don't have to have all the issues answered. You don't have to have everything in line. You don't have to. You can be confident and you can be strong, and you can know that you're not alone. Now, you can know that. You can know that on the radio, and you can know that on the internet, but there's nothing like being next to a warm body, worshiping the Lord, studying the Bible, praying together, taking communion together to remember that you're a part of a much larger family than what you think today. And so Elijah is here, 
And God's response to this time in Elijah's life was to have him stand up and pay attention. And the Lord passes by in his power and his glory. And then came a strong wind that broke the rocks and a strong earthquake that shook the ground and came a dramatic fire. But after that, it was in the still small voice that God came, a gentle whisper by which the Lord met his faithful servant. I don't want to go into depth here, but I want you to to remember Mary and Martha. Mary and Martha. Jesus comes to their house. Martha's in the kitchen rattling the pans, doing what any normal person would do. Hey, how would you feel if I told you Jesus was coming to your house? Because I know whenever the house starts getting cleaned up, a guest is on the way. (laughs) I already know that. Sometimes I know who the guest is, and sometimes I want to ask who the guest is, but I know this. If there's cleaning going on, somebody's coming over. And I'm always like, wait a minute. Why can't they just see us and come to our house how we live? Oh, it's too dirty. It's too dirty. And that's fine. I get it. So I understand Martha. She's, she's a servant. She wants to get into the kitchen, take care of business. I get that. But Jesus told us in that small episode, Jesus told us that Mary chose the good part. While Martha was in the kitchen serving, Mary was down at the feet of Jesus. And I was always reminding, in order for Jesus to get Martha's attention, he would have to at least speak in a regular voice, maybe even a voice raising his tone a little bit to get her attention. But for Mary, she could have heard him if he decided to whisper. That's how close she was. And so they become a picture, more than just the essence of the, the event, they become a picture to us that what was the good part? Well, Mary certainly chose to be close in worship, but I think there's, a, there's something here where we have, have with Elijah where she was close enough that even if he chose to whisper, she could hear. So we end here. Is your life so cluttered? Is your life so loud? Is your life so busy? Is your life so caught up in emotion and drama and difficulty that if God decided to bring an earthquake and bring the rock shattering and you think, oh, God's in all the activity and are you so busy that you would miss the still, small voice of the Lord? The one that is a whisper. The one that He draws you in close. You moms and dads, you know there are those times, and grandmas and grandpas, you know as well. Those are those times when you draw your kids so close and you bring them up into your lap, you place them on your chest, and you don't scream at them when they're that close. You don't put your your hand on their ear and scream so they can hear you. You take it down a notch, don't you? And you begin to whisper and gently speak, gently cradle, gently rock, You know, the Lord wants to do a work like that in your life and mine, to draw you and me so close that his voice, he doesn't have to yell, he doesn't have to scream, he doesn't have to bring broken rocks or earthquakes, although he could do that to get our attention, but just to give you a still, small voice, just to whisper those beautiful truths, how much he loves you, how he hasn't given up on you. He's not yelling at you as you're running away from him. He's not yelling at you when you want to turn your back on him, but rather he's drawing you near. And then you respond because the Bible says that if you draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. And he brings you up close. He brings you up to the place where he begins to whisper how much he loves you. He says, oh, daughter, have you forgotten that I love you? Look to the cross. Oh, son, has that little trinket and bauble in the world, has that gotten your attention? Am I not enough for you anymore? And he just begins to affirm his love for you 
and affirm his care for you. And he may ask you the same question he's been asking you for a while. What are you doing here? What are you doing here? And we'll leave that there. We'll develop it next time a little more, this event at the rocks. But let the Lord, let us leave with just remembering God's faithfulness and his goodness. And I quote it all the time. If you want the address, it's 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. So Father, as we turn our hearts and attention toward you, and we're reminded of your faithfulness and your goodness, we're reminded of how much you love us and how much you care. God, you were so faithful to Elijah in the deep, dark despair of his life. In the dark season, you were there. After a great victory down from the mountaintops of Mount Carmel to the caves of Beersheba, you were there all the way. You won't abandon us, turn your back upon us, but rather you're inviting us into closeness and intimacy with you. You're inviting us to listen carefully for what you want to say in all the noise of this world, all the worries and fears that we have, all the concerns. I pray for marriages tonight, Lord, the concern of marriage. I pray for singles tonight, Lord, the concern of singles. I know there's a a few among us that financially it's really hard. It's a stretching time. It seemed to be so strong and now it's so challenging. And the temptation is to run away. The temptation is to seek satisfaction some other way. To think that abundant life is somewhere for us in this world. If we just had a little bit more and we just did a little bit more, maybe you'd be happy with us. But all the while you say that we are accepted in the beloved. That it's all grace, not a little bit, not halfway. All of our life with you is grace. It's all undeserved. It's you and not us. It's your faithfulness, your strength, your pursuing love. You the one that gives second chances. You the one that pursues us and you the one that waits for us, and you the one, Jesus, that intercedes for us and stands for us and is for us and not against us. I pray right now against the Jezebels, the manipulators, the passive-aggressive ones, the ones that would seek to take advantage of weaknesses. Lord, I pray against that demonic spirit behind it and how the devil wants to destroy I pray for those right now listening to me that are under intense oppression of a Jezebel-type spirit. Just this, this oppressive, spiritual, nonstop attack. Lord, would you release them by your power of your Holy Spirit? Would they rise up and give them, Lord, you said you've given to us all measure of faith. May you give to them and increase our faith, Lord, that we might be able to walk and stand one more day that we might be able to trust you no matter what it looks like. <laughs> that we wouldn't be so scared, man, that we'd take off and leave our servant there. <laughs> but rather, Lord, we stay arm in arm with one another, supporting and strengthening one another. Are you here today and you're under great oppression? Would you just stand to your feet? Just oppression. Maybe I described it, maybe I didn't. 
I don't have to. It doesn't have to be a Jezebel type of thing. You just got, it's oppression, a pressure, like a, like a pressure headache, but spiritually, you got this oppression and this pressure on your life that you just want to give to the Lord. If that's you, just stand up. Stand up where you are. It's just, we'll just leave, like, like just asking God to relieve the oppression and the pressure. We'll just ask God tonight for a spiritual aspirin that might go right to the pressure. Some of you are going to be relieved right away, and others of you are still going to have to walk by faith. And maybe it's the oppression of fear. Maybe it's the oppression of sorrow. Maybe it's the oppression of anxiety. Maybe it's the oppression of, of man, you name it. You name it. And just begin out loud to ask God to lift the oppression. Just go ahead, those of you that are oppressed, just begin to pray out loud. Pray out loud this, name it what it is before the Lord and just ask him to deliver you. Ask in faith. So even though if you're faithless, just let your words speak out to God and ask him to remove the oppression. Ask him to use the oppression. Ask him to speak to you. Ask him to confirm his love to you. He will answer those prayers. Just out loud, out loud. Cry out to him. Cry out to him. Be released today. Allow him to release you and strengthen you. Even those of you that sat down, that you're sitting down right now and you are pressed and you want to do it under your breath. Do it under your breath. The Lord hears. The Lord hears your prayers. Yes, Lord. Lift the burdens here tonight, God. Lift the oppression. We pray against the work of the enemy who are sowing thoughts of 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 evil, maybe even suicide. I pray, God, that you would take the thoughts of suicide away like Elijah had. Whatever level he was, wanting to die, God, take that thought away. Replace it with a thought of life and life more abundant. Jesus, you said you came to give life and that more abundantly, so, so we yield our minds to you. Fill our hearts and our lives with life We pray, God, for those that are lifeless tonight, those that are spiritually dry. You said, you promised that that anyone, if they're thirsty, to come to you, and out of the innermost being would come rivers of torrents of living water. So we just pray that promise into those that are oppressed tonight. Torrents of living water. That we might live abundant lives trusting you. That even when all hope is lost, God, you make a way where there is no way. You ask Moses, you make a way where there is no way. You, you, you ask Peter who was sinking. You, you deliver even when the water's over our heads. You deliver. You make a way. And may we leave here just trusting you, God, a little bit more, knowing that it's not our strength and it's not our good works and it's not our faithfulness. It's your faithfulness and that you might draw us closer to be the men and women that you want us to be, that we might we might leave here to encourage someone else. We're not asking for the oppression to be removed just for us. But we know, according to the word, Elijah's not done. You have more in story. Right there, you told him, get up and go start anointing. Go back and do what you were doing. No more running. No more caves, Elijah. There's more work for you to be done. And I pray that into our church right now, those that have gathered tonight. You be glorified, God, in Jesus' name. Amen.